0: Um, I've recently, though, taken a break from social media for a lot of reasons. But one of those is I would like someone would send me a link to a, a video, you know, of a cat doing a backflip and then slam dunking it over, um, I don't know, Kawhi Leonard or something. And I'm like, oh, I got to see that. And I just watched one video and then there's another one right under it. And I'm like, oh, that looks funny. And then two hours later, I realized the whole world has revolved around me. And meanwhile, the most fruitful thing that I've done is is watched the 10 biggest fails of the year. You know what I mean? We're all guilty of what is called clickbait. And the most uh, most recent trend on social media is an advertisement that looks something like what you're looking up here that says, 21 baby elephants who know how to party. These are real uh, links, by the way, that Kirsten found when she was making it. The second one says, what does your tea preference say about you? I'll tell you what it says. You need to drink coffee, not tea. The second, the last one says, no, there's no baguette shortage in France. Oh my goodness, because we were so worried. I mean, these links, they draw us in, we click on them because we just have to watch elephants who have to party, and then when you pull it up, It changes. It's something completely different, like the 10 best life hacks. And then you pull it up, and it's like, put your seatbelt on before you put your car in ignition. It's like, that's not a life hack. That's common sense. Uh, After you get enough tickets for not wearing your seatbelt, you'll figure it out. Clickbait. I feel like there's some spiritual clickbait in our lives. There's some spiritual clickbait going on. There are things that the world tries to sell us, and then sometimes we even buy into them, but we realize they're just not what they sold us. They're not what the link says. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to jump back into John. Hey, we have had a great time. The first six weeks of the year was awesome. Diving into John, John chapter 1 through John chapter 6. If you're interested in going back and listening to our podcast, uh, the series was called New Me, Who This," And it was awesome talking about starting the new year being found in Jesus. But sometimes, I'm telling you from experience, sometimes when you start to follow Jesus, it can get old. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we sell into routine. Sometimes we sell into tradition. Sometimes it gets uncomfortable and we just are not the, we're not the star of it. And man, that's frustrating for an introvert who likes attention. It's hard not being the star of the show. It's hard when it's not comfortable. It's hard when it's, uh, when it has to be new all the time. And so as we study from John chapter 7 to John chapter 11, we're going to look at some things that the world tries to sell us, but, and we'll give the Sunday school answer that Jesus is just better. Always Jesus is just better, depending on what your de- definition of better is. Hey, can you go ahead and in your Bible uh, find John chapter 7? Uh, John chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to hang out there for most of the time at the end. I'm going to read just a couple verses from Galatians. And uh, one, uh, a couple verses from Psalm 42. So if you want to get ahead of the game, that's where we are. I want to catch you up to where we are in John. So maybe you weren't here at the beginning of the year. Maybe you're just now joining Restore Church. We're so glad uh, for, to jump right into Scripture with you. Um, where we are in John is that John's purpose of writing the gospel, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they look really similar to each other. John creates a, like, working man's gospel. And John's intention about writing his gospel is that at the end of it, there's no doubt in your mind that Jesus is both 100% man and 100% God. Remember John chapter 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then you find out in John chapter 1 verse 14 that the Word became flesh and the reader's dying to know who that is. Well, in the next few chapters, we find out that the Word who was God in the beginning with God was an active part of creation with God is actually this man named Jesus. Jesus starts to do miracles. He's teaching in a different way. He does some healings on the Sabbath, which is a no-no, and gets him into trouble. Then crowds follow him because they want to see what Jesus is going to do next. They want to hear what he's got to say. They really just want to follow him to see him keep standing up and sticking it to the Pharisees. Large crowds gather, and we saw in John chapter 6, a large crowd gathers, he feeds 5,000, they follow him to the other side, and they're like, we want more, we want more, we want more, and finally Jesus says, okay, if you want more, you really, really have to follow me, even when it gets uncomfortable, and then they're like, man, this is too hard, who can follow this kind of teaching, and they all leave, and then Jesus turns to his disciples, and here's the question he poses to all of us at the end of John chapter 6 is, what about you? What about you? Will you follow me? Actually, Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter replies this. He says, to where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And over these next couple weeks and over the next couple of chapters, we're really going to find the words that Jesus has, uh, the words of eternal life. So if you found John chapter 7, um, here's, here's where we'll begin. It says this in verse 1, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. All right, you're going to have to go back with me a couple of months when we finished John. A couple months ago, Jesus, along with his disciples, they were in Jerusalem. So if you imagine uh, Galilee being um, uh, Virginia, Uh, Samaria being North Carolina, and Judea, where Jerusalem is, being South Carolina. That's your geography. And so a couple months ago, Jesus was in Jerusalem, the most southern place, and he healed this paralyzed man who's sitting by the pool of Siloam. You can find that in John chapter 5. In a very awe-inspiring way, in a very symbolic form, Jesus spoke words of healing to this man. He says, pick up your mat and walk away. Another account tells us that the man went away rejoicing and celebrating and worshiping God for all that he had done in that moment in his life. But there were some people who weren't exactly happy with Jesus and what he did. Do you guys remember this? The religious people. It's the religious people. The people who followed traditions, the people who followed the rules, they're angry. They couldn't care less about the man's miraculous hearing, healing or this extraordinary uh, glimpse at God. They didn't care that this man had his future back, that he could run and that he, he could jump into water, that he could rejoice and leap. They didn't care about that. The religious people only cared that Jesus had done this miracle on the Sabbath in which nobody should do any work. Jesus, as a professor in college, used to say to us, "Jesus, upset the fruit cart." That's exactly that's it. Jesus has made a mess of normal, clean, rigid religion. These religious leaders, they, they had no problem. they were going about their normal day, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and he breaks God's laws. So they're so upset and they're so angry that their next step of action is they're going to kill him. And the turning point in John is John chapter 5 verse 18. You can look it up later, but it says this, that they tried, at this point, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Now listen, following Jesus was already hard enough, it was not the societal norm, but now the religious people, check this out, the religious people were making it even harder to follow Jesus. The religious people were after this man named Jesus. They wanted to kill him. And the threat was so serious that while he was in Judea, he had to flee to go to Galilee. But then the time comes for this Jewish festival. It was called, in, your, in the scriptures you can read it, it's going to be called uh, the Festival of Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S, not boots, booths. But if you're from a rural hometown, every festival you had was a festival of boots. Am I right? Or you'll read it as the Festival of Tabernacles. It was a seven-day harvest feast in the fall, which, they, which prayers and petitions were made for rain and sunlight, and they were usually expressed with water libations and nightly lighting of menorahs. A couple years ago, uh, I read a book um, called Home by Marilyn Robinson. Now, I'm not one for fiction. I'm just... I have no imagination. But this book really gripped me. It was about a father who was a preacher, and he was nearing the end of his life. He was starting to get sick. Um, his middle child, Glory, had come home to take care of her father. At some point in her life, Glory had moved away, became a teacher, she married, and then eventually she divorced. There was Teddy. Teddy was the oldest of the children, and he was the success story. He was the golden child. He had left home a long time ago to become a doctor. He became a doctor and is successful. But then there was the black sheep of the family. Some of y'all, is that some of y'all? All right, cool. We're on the same page then. The black sheep of the family, the one who always caused problems for himself, the family, and everyone, his name was Jack. So there's Teddy, Glory, and Jack. And in the story, the main plot of the story was Jack wanted to come home to say goodbye to his dad before he passed. But he he made his schedule such that he could come home before any of the other children uh, would come home to say goodbye. So he tried to come back like really early and so the, real, the big plot around the story was when he came home about three weeks early to say his goodbyes to his father, he was surprised to see that his, the, the middle uh, daughter was there, Glory. She had been there for weeks taking care of him. Now the tension in the house was between really all the members of the family. See, Jack had never come home for his mother's funeral, and so his relationship between his siblings and especially his dad was really strained. And so this, ha- this was the first time he had been home in 20 years, and as the story unfolds and the plot thickens, uh, if you read carefully, you'll see that the, d- the desire of each family member really is to gain the approval of everyone else in the home. Glory, her entire life, just wanted her dad to approve of her. She really wanted her younger brother's approval also. The father, he wanted all his children just to get along, and as a pastor, just wanted them to be followers of Jesus. But there was a significant uh, moment at the end of the book where Jack wanted the approval of his dad so bad that he lies to him in his last moments. He tells him, yes, dad, I have accepted Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. But only the reader would know that he was lying. Man, family structures are so unique. You could probably tell stories about yours, about your home. Your home is what makes you for better or worse or indifferent. And so this relationship structure really makes these next few verses really kind of excruciating. Look at John chapter 7. Uh, we're reading verses 2 to 5. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles or booths was near, um, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee. And go to Judea so that the disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret since you are doing these things. Go ahead and show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. All right, I need to take a pause because I think I was trying to get a little, trying to go quick. Um, you can follow along on the YouVersion Bible app, all right? Uh, Also, we have some volunteers in the back that will pass out a Bible if you would like one. I don't want to get so far ahead that you can't follow along and you're like, man, I'm just... If you're like me and people get ahead of you and you're behind, you just quit. That's what all good competitors do. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, if, if you need a Bible, throw your hand up and a volunteer will bring it to you. And we're in John chapter 7. All right, so there we are. The brothers of Jesus are trying to get him to go to Judea but they kind of make fun of him to do it. Go down there. If you really are a public figure like you say you are, go ahead. Now, following Jesus was hard enough, but now even his family couldn't find the courage to follow Jesus. This morning we're going to talk about three big obstacles in following Christ. See, following Jesus in a culture that doesn't accept him is difficult to say the least. Am I right? Some of you have come to crossroads of your faith or your career, your faith or your family, your faith or a friendship. And what you found is that it takes commitment to to pick Christ. It takes strength to overcome. And in this moment, Jesus looks at his brothers and his brothers, the ones who should have his back, right? They should be encouraging him. They'd rather go with the flow of community. Sounds like some churches and church attenders now we can't make up our mind about who Jesus is and we'd rather be normal about our faith we'd rather be normal than than boast about our faith we'd rather uh, flow into society than stand for anything some people in the church would rather conform to society even those who at one point were the closest to Jesus Even those who have seen Him heal their families in their own lives at some point give up because it gets uncomfortable. The first obstacle that we face in this passage that we see is comfort. Jesus is greater than comfort. Comfort is the first clickbait. There's something that the brothers of Jesus really ought to be teaching us here. They knew that following Jesus meant all or nothing, not some. It wasn't a choice to follow Jesus for them when it was convenient. It's not a choice to follow Jesus when it's easy. It wasn't a choice for these or these brothers of Jesus to follow him when the feeling is there, but when it's not, uh, we're out. Even Jesus' brothers knew that making the decision to follow Jesus was an all-or-nothing thing. They knew that because uh, they knew because they couldn't do it. These, these brothers couldn't follow Jesus completely. And they knew that if they couldn't follow Jesus completely, they shouldn't even do it at all. You ready for an unpopular opinion? Following Jesus is not about your comfort or your breakthrough or your rise over your haters. Makes for some cool t-shirts, but it's just not found in Scripture. I saw something uh, online just this week, uh, and it says this. When, people want, or when Paul wanted to encourage Christians, he did not say that their breakthrough was right around the corner. He helped, he helped them make sense of their suffering in light of the coming reign of Christ. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. He went on to say this, Sometimes the breakthrough doesn't come. Christians get sick and they die. We lose the job and we don't get a better one. The resurrection and transformations of all things is our hope. Not victory over haters, but victory over death. It's not about comfort. Following Jesus is not about living a life of comfort. It's instead living a life that through our trials, they point to Jesus and his glory. This life is about making God famous. Uh, Let's keep reading in John chapter 7. First clickbait is comfort. Uh, the, then, then we keep reading. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. Jesus is teaching. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and they're asking, where is he? I'm sure they're plotting. I'm sure they're waiting for him to come because once he's there, they can trap him and kill kill him. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. Here again, we see this this type of language coming from Jesus about his time not yet coming. Remember in John chapter 2 when his mom tells him to turn the water into wine, and he says, woman, you all remember that? He didn't mean it out of disrespect, but sometimes we read it, we're like, Jesus, ease up. You're about to catch the backside of Mary's hand. She can be like, bless you. Uh oh But do you remember his response to why he wasn't ready to do it? He says, my time has not yet come. See, if Jesus were to march into Jerusalem at the beginning of this festival, when all of the Jews expect him to be there, they're going to arrest him on the spot and ultimately fulfill their mission of killing him. There's no doubt that Jesus has a duty to protect himself and to protect the mission that he has on earth. Hey, when you look at this passage, Jesus didn't lie to his brothers about going to the festival. He may have changed his mind like all of us do. Um, we, we also don't know how much time passes between verse 9, when he tells his brother he's not going to go, and verse 10. But we do know when we read uh, verse 14 that it wasn't until halfway during the week um, that Jesus began to start to teach at the festival. Notice this in the scripture. That before the festival even begins, before Jesus gets there, Jesus is the topic of discussion that people are already talking about. And already, the curiosity of the people was at a maximum. And even before Jesus made an appearance or spoke a word, the people were divided about who he was. Some thought he was a good man worth sticking up for. Others thought he was full of deception and a liar. And then we get to verse 15. The Jews Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Verse 18, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent me is a man or woman of truth. And there's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? I want to pause right here and show you what our next clickbait is. Jesus is greater than our traditions. Now, before you write me off, let's keep this up here for a second. Before you write me off, just hang with me. Jesus makes it clear that not one person is able to keep the law. Now, when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the Mosaic law that extends all the way back uh, into uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Jewish law consists of 613 laws. How can anybody keep 613 laws, let alone keep... uh, Ten, (laughs) it's impossible. And it shows us from the very beginning that God's plan is not for us to be perfect, but to rely and to trust on him. From the very beginning, we couldn't uh, fulfill the law on our own. And so we needed something, some kind of sacrifice. And you and I, we need the blood of Jesus to forgive us of our sins. But, you know, sometimes I forget that. Sometimes I live a life trying to be perfect. It's it's easy for us uh, to think of tradition. So when I say tradition, you're like, yeah, we're not a traditional church. uh, So, you know, I'll choose Jesus over tradition anytime. We we often think of stuffy old churches, right? Or unaccepting old people who sneer at the dude with tattoos. Perhaps it's the church you grew up in. Or... um, Maybe it's the one your parents drug you to. Perhaps it's the one that you vowed, I will never go back to that church. Or maybe you said, I will never go to church again. Maybe it's the church that you think of when you think of, uh, of the reason for churches that say we're church for the rest of us. Hey, look, if that's you, I want to apologize for those churches. I really think their heart is to try to do what's good But over time, tradition sometimes gets in the way. And I think even for us as a church that's two years old, for us as a church that's trying to seek God and do it with a mission of loving God, loving people, and loving the world, with a mission of being a church for the rest of us, I think it would be a good idea for us to look at this tradition with some new eyes. They say that in the church the most dangerous words are because that's the way we've always done it. Look, when the church becomes, um, when, when the way you've always done it becomes your decision maker about church, tradition has become greater than Jesus. Now again, you might say, uh, that's not the case for me, but if you leave church and you, the first thing you talk about is your preferences, you might have replaced Jesus with tradition. If you leave and say, man, I really didn't like that song, you might have replaced tradition with Jesus. Now, I'm going to defend myself for a moment. If you say, man, that sermon was a little bit too long, you might be right, but you might have replaced tradition with Jesus. Now, if you were to leave a service and say, man, I can't get more. I need more God. Man, here's how the Lord spoke to me. Now, have we had uh, bad music? Yeah, yeah. Usually the weeks that I play, it's bad. All right, I get it. Today was good. Today was good. Hey, Melody, this was her first time playing at Restore. Can we give it up for Melody? Yeah. I don't have that excuse. You know what I mean? So have we had bad music? Yeah. Have we had bad services? Yeah. Have we said things on stage that we probably shouldn't have and wish we could take back like every week? Yeah. But look, Restore is not about me. It's not about the band. It's not about you. We're trying to make God famous here, and so it's all about Jesus. A more mature Christian than I am once told me after we were leaving a conference. He said, "What did you think about the message?" And I said, "Well, I didn't think the sermon was very good." And he said, um, "Well, h- why? How were you listening? Were you listening to what he had to say, or were you listening for what God had to say?" He said, "There's no such thing as a bad sermon. They're just bad listeners." And I was like, "Don't talk to me anymore. You are not my mentor. You are fired." Francis Chan tells a story about a woman who left worship and uh, he was standing outside greeting people as you do and he says um, or she walked out and she said great sermon uh, pastor and he said thank you and she said I I didn't really care too much for the worship and he said well that's all right because we weren't worshiping you. See Jesus is more than our preferences when it comes to following him. He is better than our traditions. He's better than our desires or our song choice. Can you believe that still we are arguing about music in churches? We're not trying to find the best ways to serve our community or worship Jesus. We're just talking about whether we should play with the hymnals or put the words on the TV. It's unbelievable. Jesus says to his followers, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And that should be the tenet of every Christ follower. Nowhere in there are our preferences or our traditions. Very quickly can a church like ours become a traditional church if we replace anything else as first in in front of Jesus. Let's keep reading uh, this passage. So I have a timer usually here, and it's not working, so you guys are just kind of screwed. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses—oh, this is really good. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken— why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Poof, Jesus just dropped the mic. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Man, Tupac had it right, didn't he? Only God can judge me. Jesus uses this. All right, cool. Here, this will impress your friends, all right? Uh, especially your Christian friends. Your non-Christian friends really don't care, okay? Jesus uses this arguing method that's really extremely common in the first century. He uses it. It's called a qual wahomer. Isn't that fun? Qual wahomer. Yes, I'm going to make you say it. Ready? One, two, three. Qual wahomer. So good. I just want to say that the rest of the sermon. And what what a qual wahomer is, is when you use an argument, arguing from least to greatest or light to heavy. Here's an example. Jesus uses this teaching in Matthew chapter 7. He says it like this. If you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? You see the lesser to greater type argument. It's taking something that is smaller and then making something greater out of it. So do you see Jesus using the qual homer? This might seem like useless information to you at first, but but watch this. The Jews that are listening know exactly what Jesus is doing. They would have recognized that he was making an argument that the Mosaic law, the circumcision, which is where the Pharisees hang their hat on, uh, is less than or lighter than, than the freedom and the liberation that comes from the healing that Jesus did for the entire body of the paralyzed man in John 5. See, they're trying to stick to the law, but do you remember what Jesus says in John 5? This is in my notes. I'm just now like, God's like, hey, say this. I'm like, okay. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, what's easier for me to do, to heal his body or to forgive his sins? And the answer is to heal his body because everybody can see it. But to forgive his sins, Jesus can't do that. I mean, only God can do that. And so what Jesus is saying right here is, dude, what's lesser in this argument is is the Mosaic law that talks about circumcision. But I can heal the whole body, including the mind, spirit, and soul. Jesus is greater. Jesus certainly knew what he was doing in this debate. He's laying the groundwork for his reason and his mission for being here. These religious people, the moral example for the godly community is now making it more and more difficult for people outside of the church to come follow Jesus. They're making it difficult for people uh, to discover Jesus, for people to, to love Jesus, for people to give Jesus or their whole lives to Jesus. And you know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's not much different today. We would rather show our intellect in a Facebook debate than we would show our compassion over a cup of coffee or a private message. We would rather show someone how right we were with an I told you so rather than saying it's okay because grace abounds. You know. It was becoming more and more difficult for them, or for them in the first century, and it's even growing more and more difficult now, because you know some people are looking at the church and saying, I, "I would, I would maybe join that. Maybe I could get on that mission if they would stand up for something." One of the one of the biggest obstacles we're putting in people's way of loving God is that we're just kind of in between. We won't stand for truth, man. I'd like to encourage you to do that. I'm trying to skip some notes here. Uh, Paul says this in Galatians chapter five, verse one. He says, it's for freedom. Listen to this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. There's this group called the Judaizers, and they're telling Christians, yes, you can be a Christian, but you also have to keep the Mosaic law, the ones that the Pharisees are trying to implement. Paul's telling the Christians in these churches, stand firm in your faith. Don't give in to the burden of slavery or tradition, but focus on the freedom of Jesus. And believe it or not, there's a lot of Christians who stand in stark contrast to this verse. They'll never tell you that they do, but their lives would reflect disdain for the freedom of Jesus. There are types of people who stand at the front doors of Jesus uh, of churches waving their fingers at the community. You cannot come in until... Whatever. They sit in their Bible studies in their small groups with their nose up at the world saying, I'm just glad that I'm not like them. The types of Christians that are legalistic in their views and, and they shove doctrines down the throat of people who barely have even walked into church. Their types of people, um, these types of people are the reason that some people will never feel comfortable in restore, they'll never feel comfortable in church setting at all. These types of religious people that fill the pews of churches every Sunday morning, uh, of pews and chairs, sorry, pews, they're like long benches. All right, just so we're on the same page. And these types of people or religious people fill pews and white and blue chairs every Sunday, and they're making it very difficult for people to step foot in church. And it shouldn't be that way. No, it should be the opposite. Um, when Beau was uh, when, was one years old, one year old, one years old, one year, one year. Okay, am I saying that right? When he had 12 months under his belt, uh, he was crawling everywhere. Y- you guys know this. If you have a one year old, they're getting into everything. They're opening up cabinets. They're crawling up on furniture, um, all, all that stuff. And it's really an enjoyable time for everybody who's not the parent. You know, you got to chase them around. You're getting your ab workout in, all that stuff. And, and he would knock things down. We were at my grandparents' house who really, their, that house wasn't made for young children. And we were at their house, and, and it was this thing, that thing. He was bouncing off the walls, all that stuff. And, and so we were just following him around, and we were exhausted. And so we were like, no, Bowen, no, Bowen, no, Bowen, no, Bowen. Stop, Bowen. Quit, Bowen, quit, Bowen. And my grandmother, who is a saint and will uh, be sitting next to Jesus in heaven, Uh, My grandfather uh, says to him one time, he said, no, Bowen, Bowen, no, Bowen, stop. And then I hear my grandmother said, well, Carl, give him a yes. Give him something to say yes to. And that really struck me. Give him a yes. Somewhat embarrassing right now that the world knows more about what the church stands against than they know what we stand for. They know more about the law than they do the love of the church. And even though it's already hard enough to follow Jesus in our culture, the church, unfortunately, in the last decade has made it even harder. And I think it's time for us to give them a yes. And that's choosing freedom over tradition. Um, Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says this, uh, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Hey, I want to share this last point, and then I'll finish it up. It says that it's uh, that Jesus is greater than ourself. Jesus is greater than us. And it kinda, this kind of boils down all, all of the sermon, doesn't it? Like Jesus is better than your comfort. Jesus is better than... Uh, uh, your tradition. Let me, let me ask it another way. Are you desperate for Jesus? Because if, if you don't wake up every day desperate for Jesus, Jesus has become, or something has become greater than Jesus. Like, we, we've got to wake up every day with a desire and a passion in our heart to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, to worship Jesus, to, to just have our whole life entrenched in Jesus. And i got to tell you, you know, I've been kind of open and honest about this little—I'm going through a little struggle right now, me and God, you know. You, have you ever been there? If you haven't been there, you may not be doing it right like there are times in your Christian walk where you and Jesus, you and God just don't see eye to eye and you gotta, you gotta fight it out. Now I'm gonna tell you, you will lose every time. You will not win, but it's worth the fight. And just recently, God and I have been fighting and I'm like, God, where are you? And he's like, Roger, where are you? And I'm like, ah, good point. All right, next round. <laughs> and... um. um You know, just uh, read read the rest of John seven later this week. But man, through John seven, we see that Jesus is an option, right? For his brothers, he's an option for the for the Jews. He's an option uh, for the law. But in verse um verse thirty nine, or I'm I'm sorry, verse thirty eight, verse thirty seven. Jesus says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And here's what I've come to find. If you're not thirsty, you don't need water. You know what I mean? Like if you don't find yourself thirsting or quenching, then you don't need water. If you don't find yourself needing Jesus, guess what? You don't need him. You can go your whole day, your whole week, your whole marriage, your whole career, your whole life, your whole financial struggle, your whole whatever, and not needing Jesus because you've never needed Jesus. You know, the past month, the past three weeks, I've been just thirsty. But I've not given myself the humility. I've not allowed myself to humble myself at the foot of the cross and say, I need the water. Lord, give it to me. I've let other things get in the way. I've let restore come first. I've let the growth of a church, your church, get in the way of your relationship and mine. I've let the difficulties of a stinking hot school frustrate me to the point that I, I can't even come, to, c- come in a moment of prayer without trying to solve everything. I don't know, maybe you've never been in a spot where your mouth was so dry for the Lord that you've had to read Psalm 42. And I, I just want to read these, and uh, we, we do this every now and then. We're going to make Psalm 42 the prayer as we end our sermon. That's what it says. As the deer pants for streams of water, oh my soul, it pants for you, my God. My soul, it thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Listen, my tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why my soul are you downcast? Why disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from the Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then the psalmist writes this as the last sentence. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Amen.